Okay, here we go. World Cup number five, I believe, is over. I thought it was one of the best uh, group of races I've seen in a while. It, I loved watching the mud races. It always throws a little something uh, extra into the equation, and some people seem to ex excel at that, and some just seem to uh, to bail. So I find it interesting. That was an excellent a uh, couple races, and I got some interesting tidbits um, about helmets that I noticed, and got some gear stuff. Nothing too crazy. Something uh, that came across my uh, my browser from 2016 about Emily Batty. I found that interesting, and then we got a little bit of the old school uh, discussion. Something I saw on YouTube that kind of shook my uh, memory a little bit. So here we go. This is Short Travel Magazine. Short Travel Magazine. Racing news and views. All right, uh, everybody, I'm sure has watched the um, Valnord World Cup couple interesting aside from the ridiculously cold weather although i'll be honest with you i've done races like that i thought it was they're always kind of fun um a couple observations though that i'm sure you've probably noticed i'm curious as to why so few men and women are wear long sleeves or tights now long tights i can understand maybe something to do with the restriction of movement i mean i certainly kind of notice it when i in the fall here when i start wearing uh, tights again but i mean you get used to it certainly within five minutes i at least i do um, but yeah i mean most of them seem to just have the regular old short sleeve jerseys which are already transparent practically some of them and the regular shorts and i mean it was in Fahrenheit, I looked up the conversion. It was in the 40s, low 40s, and wet. I, I mean, I think my limit to where I can wear normal jersey and shorts is in the like 60s, low, low to mid 60s, where I'm already throwing at least a long sleeve on. And then we start getting below 60, I'm throwing uh, at least leg warmers or maybe even full tights. So I, I was always curious, you know, in these situations where they weren't planning for super cold weather, do, do these teams have entire winter clothing stashes somewhere with them? I mean, they're all, everybody was wearing winter coats. I wonder how many people, certainly from countries like, uh, you know, the warmer countries, do they bring all the winter gear? But either way, Mona definitely seemed she had full arm and leg covers. And, of course, she won her first race. We don't have to go crazy over that. Uh, I mean, that's something I think that was just probably going to happen. I wasn't sure it was going to happen this season, although the last couple races she certainly was getting closer and closer. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe she found her, as Bart Brunchen said in the uh, post-race interview on GCN, that maybe she found her formula don't don't start I mean you don't have to be you know in the first three or four people right in the right off the gun but 
you can stay in the 10 to 12 range and then work your way up, you might very well be able to overtake uh, some people and win some races that way. I don't think her being the fastest or slowest starter, I don't honestly think that's going to matter. Not when she can seem to just keep that pace up, that relentless pace, and just catch people. I mean, catch everybody, you know, that's pretty amazing. So that was pretty cool. For some reason, I like I like her style. I don't know why. She was kind of cocky when she came into the elites. Not in a bad way. I mean, she was saying she wants to win, win, win. She wants to win. You know, she won basically everything uh, in the under 23. So I would imagine, just like anybody, you'd think you'd be able to walk in there and within a few at least start winning. I mean, look what Loana LeCompte did. She came in and started winning her first year like it was nothing. So it can be done. It has been done and will be done in the future. But uh, Mona, she kind of worked into it a little, which I think might actually pay off in the long run once she kind of figures out now that she was able to to pull that one off. I don't know if it was the wet weather. I don't know if it was her determination, whereas other people kind of just lost a little bit motivation. I don't know. It's excellent. I can't wait to see what happens in France at the next one, I believe in two weeks. I think this coming weekend here is downhill only, and then it uh, does the cross-country stuff. So that's cool. So it's been a while since we've had a mud race, uh, a real mud race in the cold, no, no less. I mean, to me, that's the extra element. It wasn't so much the mud, but man, for Pauline Fran Prevost to mention she couldn't feel her legs and stuff like that. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty epic. So that was cool. What else do we have? Uh, I think, I mean, you can go look at the results. I'm not going to sit here and read the results. To me, what's more interesting? Of course, you know, you got Flukiger winning. That was a brutal, brutal battle. Man, it just looked like he was just going to run out of steam as Thomas Griot caught up. And you go, who's Thomas Griot? Yeah, that dude, he's been kind of, you know, hovering around. You see his name. But he he looked like he was going to just do the old Sam Gaze kind of trick like he did, where you just keep going and and catch, although he didn't catch Pitcock. But he had that same look on his face, like, I think I got this. I can see him in, in front of me. I'm just going to keep hammering. But uh, I got to give Flick a good credit. He he stepped it up there in that last lap or so and just kind of gave it one extra little push, and that was enough to win it. So that was cool. Pidcock uh, taking, taking Jordan Saru's spot, that, that, that kind of hurt a little. Jordan was really pushing. And when you look at the overall results, like when you see on, a, on MTB data, kind of the whole... Men, women, under 23, cross-country, Olympic, and they call it short circuit. That's pretty funny. Short track, short circuit. Uh, Schwarzbauer, it's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, he won the short track in fifth. That's pretty cool. And you start seeing some of these names popping up, like Alessandra Keller, of course, second and first. Evie Richards, fifth and second. So you go, hmm, interesting. Uh so then you look at the overall results, which are what kind of shocked me a little bit. Nino literally has a 10, it's in one zero point lead over, of all people, Lars Forster, ex-teammate Lars Forster. 
I mean, I know he won that one event, but I guess maybe he's been more consistent than I was paying attention. 1572 to Nino, 1562 to Forster, and then Jordan Saru is at 1469. So he's only 100-ish. Actually, yeah, a little over 100 from uh, the top step himself. Uh, Luca Schwarzbauer is back in 1341, so there's eh, over 200-point difference there. But with the short track... Lucas starts, uh, say he wins a couple of the next short tracks, does the podiums again. He he could, uh, it's going to be a really excellent last couple races as far as the overall goes for the men. It is way closer at the top five, let's say, than typically uh, is the case. There's always somebody seems to be way ahead. Now you look at the women, it's pretty much the same thing. You have Alessandra Keller on top. And she's 62 points ahead of PFP. So that's not much. That's a short track win and a podium. Maybe uh, Puck is at 1728. So she's only about 100 points from, actually less than 100 from the top. Uh, so then Loana's down at 1652. So again, about now about 200. So the first top three easily could completely be rearranged within uh, two race, three race time, easily. In fact, I'm, I would imagine it is going to be completely different. Whereas by now, it's often like Nino or Keller, I think, I think had at least a couple hundred point lead by this point last year. So it's going to be an excellent couple uh, last couple of races. And I definitely look forward to that. On a racing report of my own, I won't go into too much detail. I did my last Wisconsin off-road series owned by Trek uh, race up at a place called Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is right over the Illinois border. It's a kind of a resort town for Chicagoans and Milwaukeeans to... It's mainly a golf type of a thing with little shops and got the lake and the boats. But they do put on a always the last race of a, of the year and I've been going there the last few years lots of climbing why I like it I don't know I'm not a climber I suck at climbing but this particular one they're not they're not super brutal and I seem to enjoy this place it's very rough lots of rocks so uh, it's just a just a perfect course I won't go into detail nobody really cares but it was probably one of the worst days on a bike I've had in a very long time everything went wrong all my preparation went wrong um, I brought my family up there to stay as I said last week in the uh, like a resort lodge place just five minutes from the racetrack I did a pre-ride which I've never I don't think I've ever in all my life in 30 years done a pre-ride the day before always wanted to always thought what an advantage it would be to help me and so I got to do it but due to so much climbing I actually kind of wore myself out a little more than I would have expected I tried not to but when you got to get up the hills I mean you got to get up the hills I'm not going to walk up them so on one hand it was nice to pre-ride because they did change the course some from last couple years but on the other hand that just kind of compounded all the other issues with no sleep we had a fire alarm go off at four in the morning in the hotel and I was completely sound asleep and I never recovered from that I never got I never got back to sleep 
I essentially had about three and a half hours of sleep because I went to bed after midnight for some stupid reason. And then I got up and I didn't feel good. Have that groggy, icky feeling. And then I ate some of the worst food at the lodge restaurant breakfast. Oh, it was, it was awful. I don't think it digested until yesterday. Just sat in my stomach and I'm on the race. Uh, I get to the race and it was hot out and didn't have hardly any warm up. Stayed way in the back of the of the starting grid. I did not even want to, you know, get in the middle of that. The first giant climb is right off right off the gate. So I just decided to chill out and let everybody go, and I just kind of stuck to the back and just ra- tried to finish it, you know, for fun, not as a race, which actually was kind of nice to have zero pressure whatsoever. If somebody went past me and like, hey, have at it. Uh, so I, I got through it, but boy, that was kind of a huge waste. I learned a couple, you think I've, I've done hundreds of races in the years. I still have not quite got it dialed in. So I got a lot of work to do for next year. I got to get some diet, uh, help, some training help. I think I'm going to actually stop buying bike stuff entirely and try and find a coach and just, I know I'm old who gives a crap. I sport, but I just want to see. If somebody has some good suggestions on something that I could do for the rest of my days racing to help me, you know, I keep hearing about all these coaches and how great they are. So let's, let's find out. That's going to be a a fall winter project for me that I'll be documenting on here. Finding a coach, somebody who can handle older dudes like me with full-time jobs and just see if they can get me kind of ready for the four or five events throughout the year that I would like to be really good at. And we'll see what happens. So that's it for the racing news. We're going to switch over to something else. Hang on. Interesting tidbits. Curated just for you. Just to be clear, I I think saying curated is completely moronic and I'm so tired of Company saying curated, that's why I did it. it was a joke, so don't take that too seriously. This isn't curated for anything or anybody. Uh, but a couple interesting tidbits. Um, if you look at the last World Cup from this weekend, the vast, vast majority, at least of the men, I didn't check the women, are wearing white helmets. Stupid, I know. Why did I notice that? I have no idea. Probably because I've been thinking of buying a white helmet because it's been very hot here this summer and I saw an article somewhere, I can't remember, singletrack.com. Somebody did a test where they measured a black helmet next to a white helmet in the in the sun with one of those uh, handheld thermometer gun thingies and it was like three times more heat being attracted to the black helmet than the white. Maybe it's that. I don't exactly know. I mean, they do stand out, but everybody, when everybody has a white helmet, as they say, then nobody is standing out. So I don't know why, but I, I'm guessing if you look, seven out of 10 have white helmets, maybe eight out of 10. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I am looking for one for next summer because I don't know, it, it, my head does get hot. I have all black helmets. That's all I own. So I thought I would try it. So that kind of stood out to me as being interesting. 
I would love to know if that's a decision like the team makes ahead of time, beginning of the year, or whatever. But so take that for what it's worth. The other interesting tidbit, now this is getting off the cross-country bandwagon, I'll admit, but I watched a video from G, what is it, GMBN, GCN's mountain bike thing, which I almost never watch because it's always about downhillers and enduros and 140 mil travel and coil shocks. So I don't ever watch that stuff. It's a shame because they probably have some good content. It's just that I don't really care much about that but they had a series of a guy I don't remember his name he was asking questions to like uh, three four women and three four men in the pits about all kinds of things you know do you bring tools on your rides do you do this do you do that how many bikes do you have and that was interesting but the one question that I found interesting most of all was what bike do you ride other than your downhill bike, you know, just for your everyday riding? In other words, obviously, most people probably don't ride a full race downhill bike, just on their local trails. A few of them did. I think one or two said that's what they ride mainly, but I'm guessing, uh, say, 10 people, seven of them maybe, all said they only have been riding their e-bike I'm assuming it's the gnarly cool uh, long travel e-bikes that they're, you know, the $20,000 bikes they get for free from their sponsors. But yeah, I was kind of surprised at how many of them actually said that's what they ride all the time. And in fact, one gentleman, I don't remember his name, said, I think he was from the England, he had had an English accent, said he actually started riding his regular bike again because he felt like he had to learn how to pedal. Again, I mean, I'm like, what? These are down... I mean, I know they're downhillers, but isn't pedaling still a thing? So I, you know, Rob Warner, of course, went full e-bike. Is, is that something? Is anybody here who's more into the downhill thing? Can they confirm that that's really what downhillers are kind of going to? One, uh, one downhiller said he rode, I believe it was... Is it Haiti Harnden or whatever? Haley, I don't know. A uh, woman downhiller. She said she actually rides her Super Caliber. She's sponsored by Trek. She rides her short travel cross country bike because that's what the trails around her are best suited for. So I found that interesting. But everybody else was like, no, nah, we ride e bikes. Uh-huh. I guess that's who's buying these $15,000 monstrosities, if you will. I'm not saying they wouldn't be a blast, but. Yeah, none of them want to pedal up the hill at all, so they just get the e-bikes, pedal up the hill, and I guess it makes perfect sense, actually, if you don't want to pedal up a hill, that's the way to do it, uh, you know, without going to a, a formal bike park. Hmm. So I found that interesting. Over and out. Changing gears. More new stuff we don't really need. Uh, ain't that the truth, as they say. That's my new thing. Ain't that the truth. A uh, couple interesting things. Nothing nothing new I saw this week that blew my mind. One thing that I find interesting is Scott Sram is touting their team clothing is now available for purchase directly on their website. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's pretty dorky to buy a 
team outfit and then ride it around your local trails over at a race as if you're on the team. I remember, you know, in the old BMX days, uh, you kind of saw that all the time. But, you know, these mainly were kids doing this. You know, that's kind of understandable to some degree. But would you even, you know, if you're good enough to look like you're on Team Scott, then you would probably have a sponsor. So this falls into the rich dudes who like to look like they're on a team. I don't know. Prices weren't insane, and um, they sound like they're very well made. And they're the you know Team Scott, Fresh Connect, and Nino and everybody helped them develop the clothes. They even have a, a zipperless jersey, which I don't think I would like a whole lot. But uh, so I don't know. Does anybody actually wear team clothes just to cruise around? Everybody's probably seen somebody on a local trail. I've seen a few actually this summer that had, you know, older, I actually saw a postal service uh, guy mountain biking in a postal service jersey from the late 90s, early 2000s, whenever. That looked kind of weird. But at that point, you know, it's so old that it's kind of like no big deal. Um, But right now, to wear like a factory truck is doing that. They have their factory looking outfit. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess because I suck, it never occurs to me to to do anything like that. So, interesting. Um, also, uh, of course, I already mentioned, we all probably maybe notice us Trek people, that Bontrager's two new tires uh, are coming, and they're not named XR1 or 2. They're, they're called Valnord and St. Anne, I'm assuming, for the uh, World Cup cross-country venues kind of cool naming system I guess I mean I'm not sure what that means Um, but as far as I remember they still said Bontrager on the side but I saw that there's some road bike accessories a little seat pack something as innocuous as a little seat pack actually kind of kind of a cool design it had a built-in little mini fender and a place to put a, a, a flashing light thing but anyway this might be the first product I've seen, but they were all labeled Trek. The bag itself, the products had the Trek, the packaging said Trek. The word Bontrager was absolutely nowhere to be seen on any of these products. And I'm 99% sure, I've been in many a Trek store, every accessory was a Bontrager. Every water bottle, every light, every fender, every seat pack, shoes, everything. So I'm wondering if for some weird reason they're phasing that name out. I don't know. It's quite interesting. I mean, Specialized doesn't have a separate name for their product uh, accessory lines, do they? I don't think so. So maybe they're kind of copping a Specialized type thing where their, uh, their brand name is going to move to truck. I don't know. That was kind of weird. And... We'll see what happens if something else, and when these tires are finally come out, if they're actually a Trek-branded product or not. Maybe it was just a one-off thing. Maybe they're only doing the road. Maybe the road uh, accessories will be Trek-branded. I don't know. Enough about that. Um, One other thing that came about when I was kind of looking around is 
Emily Batty's 2016 Top Fuel. Now, I happen to have a 2016 Top Fuel, and I got it in 2016 in July, so the new models, the 2017s, were already about to be released. They weren't released yet within a few weeks, so I got a fairly decent, close to 20% price break, and that had been the first actual mountain bike I'd ever bought in a store. I only had custom steel frames that I built up myself since 1991. So what is that, 20, 25 years I went with never actually walking in a store and buying a mountain bike. So that was it. So I just kind of went with Trek because it was local, they had it, and I could ride it around the parking lot and it was black. It seemed to have all the good stuff I wanted, the boost hubs. Um, stuff like that. So that's what I went with. And I'm still riding. I'm still happy with it. I'm going to try and make it last another year or two. But anyway, so this is basically the same kind of bike that I have. This is 2016. She had a frame with no paint, which I don't remember ever seeing, even at the time. They completely paintless top fuel. But it had the Fox electronic dampening system in it. I don't know, live valve or whatever they call it, but this was in 2016. I didn't think that was on cross-country bikes that far back. So here we are, seven, eight model years later, and we're just now seeing cross-country bikes like, uh, you know, the Pinarellos, which, of course, is Suntour, and RockShox is now throwing their... Um, flight attendant on there but that's it it's, seems like a huge gap what happened in, in between uh all these years you think that that might have been advanced a little every couple of years and maybe two three years in would have been kind of offered to all the pros uh it was pretty sleek looking there was nothing sticking off of the fork now there was a wire running to the fork and a wire running to the little box on the rear shock I'm assuming that was going to an internal battery somewhere but still it was fully finished so kind of a strange gap in bike technology and here we are 2024 models are basically out flight attendant is not on any of them as far as I know so now we're looking at a 2025 product so we're talking almost nine years and we're still not even close to being, I'd say, mainstream electronic shocks at this point. I'm not talking about downhill or enduro. That's been around. I'm talking about cross-country here. So I found that interesting. Uh, so that's it. Nothing good this week um, for the gear, but there's always next week. Carry on. Let's talk about the old school. All right, first... Uh, First old school discussion here, I believe. Um, I find, as probably some of you mountain bikers, uh, an occasional feed in my YouTube channel will be 90s mountain bike cross-country races. Uh, I don't know who... It's not one person or place putting them up, so they're kind of all over the map. But there's some World Cups, and there's Norbuzz, and World Champs, and I... I start watching them, but man, the quality is so bad in them. Uh, any of you younger folks probably don't have any idea how bad, you know, it was to vid try and video something with a 
camcorder or even production TV cameras were just crap. But anyway, uh, one thing I started watching in 1994, it was a World Cup. I can't remember where it was, but uh, this is not isolated to just this one race. I actually went back into some other races in the 90s that were on there. And the first thing that really stood out was the start. Go watch. There's one on there, 94. Maybe type in, uh, let's see, what is it called here? Yeah, it's a World Cup, the Grundig. I was way, by 94, I was doing, I actually raced at the World Cups. They had amateur racing uh, Saturday before. So you, anybody could just show up and race on the same track as Tomac and all those dudes. I did that in Traverse City several, every year they had it until 96 was the last. But anyway, 94 Grund, this is okay, Mount St. Anne, World Cup 94. Okay, you can just search for that. And the first thing I realized, first of all, there's twice as many people racing in the event. I mean, it was like ridiculous how many hundreds it looked like. Uh, but what's more interesting was the start grid, the start line. It is gigantic. I counted 16 to 20 people wide. Just rows and rows of 16 to 20 people. And the entire starting... Here we go. So there you go. At least 200 feet wide, the entire first straight. Then it, then it turned onto a road, like a fire road. So... Now, granted, they all had narrower bars, I get it, but there was so much room on that starting line that it, it wouldn't have mattered if you were in the third row. I mean, you just, it was kind of nice to watch this giant mass all go. Whereas with the eight, eight thing, it's like a BMX race where everybody has to get, you know, lined up and stay in your own little lane. And, and then the start ways now are, of course, very pretty narrow. Some are better than others, but... So old school running their starts a little more freeform. There was no spots painted on the ground where you put your little wheel. There wasn't even a line painted on the ground. There was no tape. It was just lined up. Like I said, I counted 16 to 18 at least from one side to the other. Now I'm sure they're, they're were gridded by their positions and the standings, I would imagine. But still, like I said, they're with no short track to seat everybody. I guess they'd have to do it that way. But man, it just looked way more, let's say, I don't want to say calm. It wasn't calm. They all went crazy off the gate like they do now. But uh, I don't know. It just looked like that was a much more accommodating uh, way to go for the racers. The other interesting thing is there's actually a few people still running rigid forks in the 94, uh, which is weird. Uh, the other thing that I stood out that totally jogged my memory was a fair amount of people were using the Scott handlebars that had the bar ends built in where they were just curved straight at the end so there's no separate bolted on. Uh, I actually had a pair of those. They were kind of weird because they did push your hands in a little farther. It was kind of weird getting grips on and brake levers and stuff. But 
I had them for a while. I thought they were kind of cool. So a lot of people were, were rocking those back in 94. So go look up some of these old races. Uh, again, the Grundig series, I remember probably better than others because that's when I was going to these. And I didn't realize these were World Cups so much. I mean, you had the Norba series, which was as big as a World Cup in America anyway. I mean, Europeans came just to race it. So I guess I didn't realize now that this World Cup back then was the same, I guess, in theory, as the World Cups we're watching now. Certainly have changed in the makeup of who goes, meaning it's almost all Euros now with just a few uh, North Americans where it was the op kind of the opposite in the early 90s. But uh, if you're bored, looking for something to do, go check out some of those old 90s mountain bike uh, you'll still see you know still frisian x and brunchens and some of the names will pop up you go oh, yeah and then then you'll see some you never heard of and oh, whatever happened to those people uh interesting so there you go that should do it for this week uh we'll get going again and see what happens next week talk to you soon Thank you ever so much for listening to Short Travel Magazine.